So, how are you doing? And almost end. Toward the end of our first full day of practice together. How was it? Was it easy? There's no nods. Was it difficult? A couple of nods. Have you been awake for any of it? I'm sure you all have. But the first day can be a trial sometimes. Not always, not bound to be. But coming, you know, sometimes six months in advance or however long ago it was you booked it two weeks ago, being on retreat sounds great. Retreat. Hmm. Retreat. Yeah, retreating from retreating from whatever it is that's difficult, maybe. And yet we arrive here and we have our body and our mind. They come with us. So we think, okay, if I learn the technique to kind of make this body-mind experience a bit better, maybe that will make it easier. And then we hear some technique and we try and apply it and we work hard and it's still hard and it seems like it's even worse and my mind seems like it's in more turmoil than it was yesterday. Maybe. Or maybe not. Maybe that hasn't been your experience. Maybe you've arrived and you're settling in, knowing the rhythm of these things that on the first day they can be Encounters with the hindrances. Even without knowing what they are, some of you, because you've probably never heard of them before. Does anyone feel like they've encountered some hindrances today? That's pretty normal. And how the hindrances are described in the classical teachings are not what we might imagine. You know, sometimes we sit here with our body and we think, actually, my hindrance is my body, because either it hurts or I can't feel it. Or my hindrance is my mind, because it hurts. Or it just goes on and I'm bored with it, or I'm seduced by it, or whatever. Classically, the hindrances are attitudes, we could say. Yeah, Doug, I'm just about to cough. (coughs) Um, Attitudes to whatever experience arises. So I think it's really good to get really clear from the beginning that the Buddha, after his awakening, still had a mind. Right. So awakening is not the absence of our mind. In fact, he had quite a brilliant mind. You know, the teachings laid down are show the, a very clear and uh, insightful mind. And he also had a body and lived to be old and had a body that hurt. So awakening also isn't the end of sensory experience. The Buddha had backache. Just so we get it clear from the outset, awakening is not about kind of moving away from being human. That might be a disappointment. I don't know if that's good news or bad news for you. I don't know if you're anything like me, first coming to practice, 
I like the idea of transcending. Anyone like that idea? Kind of going up. You know, because it does seem like the complication is all down here, doesn't it? In this body, in this mind, with these people, in this realm. And meditation, that sounds like it's going to get me far. I'm going to transcend this. And it's true to say there is a transcendent truth that is pointed to in the teachings. But it is not apart from and excluding this human body and mind. I haven't told you what the hindrances are yet. The hindrances, if you've noticed any today, are... Does anyone want to do a little nod or a hands up if they've noticed any of these? Just to get a, a sense of what's here. Again, it's not all of your experience, but the hindrances to meditation are, number one, aversion. The mind that doesn't like what's happening right now. Got one taker for aversion. I bet there's more than one. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's pretty normal. You know, one of the main ways our mind moves habitually is in reactivity to what's here. So we might find ourselves not liking our bodily experience, not liking our mental experience, not liking other people's bodily experience. Or what we imagine is other people's mental experience. Of course, we don't know that. Right. Don't like guy house, don't like the porridge, don't like lentils, hate soup, um, don't like the weather. I mean, that seems fair enough, doesn't it? But that kind of way, this constant mind of aversion, of, mm, we, and, we, and, and the way it hinders us is because when we're kind of averse, we're usually habitually trying to push something away. It's like, oh, uh, trying to get away from it, and that keeps us in struggle. Hindrance number two. Craving, yeah. Desire. Desire for something else. Anyone had any thoughts today (laughs) of desiring something else than what's here? Desiring something other than your body and mind and porridge and lentils and wet autumn? Yep, same, same same first taker for a version, yeah. Yeah, it's another place the mind moves. We want to see this. It's not to get down on it. But it's also, as we start to see it, we can start to have a little bit more room, a little bit more objectivity, a little bit more recognition. Oh, yeah, these are the movements. These are the movements. Desiring. It can be the fantasy of hot, sunny climate. Fantasy of sitting in here with a different group of people. Food, entertainment, something more entertaining than my sore knees and uh, hindrance number two. Hindrance number three, restlessness, any takers, (laughs) right, restlessness, that kind of is like if actually have a lot of energy often it's just like ah, can't contain it want to want to do something with it want to oh great now it's qigong right now i can blow it off a bit and we just kind of stand around and don't do very much and come on you know we got full of beans i'd invent a qigong form where we're tearing around the house and like, a lot of energy 
which a lot of energy in itself is no problem, but when it meets the form of whatever is our form of our body, our mind, of where we are, and hits up against it, can be a kind of a... What do you call that? Like a... Um, it, doesn't move, it doesn't move, it kind of gets stuck, and then we kind of feel it back on ourselves, and we've got ants in our pants, and we want to get out of here. Number four is the opposite, is the sleepiness. Much more common on the first day. Sometimes translated from Pali as sloth. Has anyone had sloth today? Yeah, I've had sloth today. Right, kind of absolutely not restless. In fact, did you put your hand up for sloth as well? You did, right? You got all four so far. Right, sloth, where it's kind of energy's gone and we just want to curl up. Can't rouse ourselves at all. Fifth hindrance, final one in this classical formulation, usually arises if all the other four arise and we haven't noticed. And that's doubt. Right? Doubt, like, what did I think I was doing? Signing up for a silent retreat with my body and mind, or, you know, in England when it's raining, or couldn't I have gone to one of those Greek islands and done, you know, and a hot weather spiritual practice or you know, doubting whether oneself can do it, doubting the teachings, doubting the teachers, doubting Gaia House, doubting everyone around you. Very different from the healthy doubt, which is another whole thing altogether where we have a big question, a big questioning of something. This is more the doubt that undermines our capacity to just keep coming back. It's like I doubt this is going to go anywhere. I doubt this is of value. So they can arise in our meditation. And it's useful to recognize it because when we don't recognize it, we're taken. We're captured, if you like. We're captured and we're, we really are comparing the weather to being in Hawaii. And it's always fall, falling short here, constantly dissatisfied. Never actually making contact with this experience that the teachers keep saying it's a really good idea if you pay attention to this experience right now, but I can't see why because it's boring or it hurts. Or so recognizing the hindrances. I also wanted to speak a little bit. We had a very nice session in here of questions and answers for those of you who didn't come, exploring all kinds of things. And one of, came up a couple of times, this question of struggle. Why is it a struggle? Why does it appear to be a struggle? And I want to say again from the outset, it isn't always a struggle. And the Buddha isn't actually trying to uh, glorify struggle or make it some kind of goal. Not at all. He's really interested in the end of struggle. But why is it a struggle when we come to pay attention to our mind and body? Why does our mind keep going off? Why is it a struggle to pull it back? What's the struggle? And I want to just give you a framework for another framework from the Buddha to put it in a very simple context. <coughs> 
and yet very profound when we explore it. He said, you struggle because you cling to things in a world of change. You struggle because you cling to things in a world of change. And what he's inviting us to do via the practice is to be really intimate with the way things are. This mind, this body, this breath, this step. Really intimate. So all our ideas about how it should be and how it shouldn't be start to clarify and leave room for us to be right here. And what we find is that it's a world that keeps changing. Mind keeps changing. Body keeps changing. Not always in the ways we want. Feelings keep changing. But our habitual tendency is to take hold and try and find something to grasp. And he said, that's the reason that you struggle. And then we get teachings the world over about letting go, right? All spiritual traditions include those teachings. So we're holding on, so let go. Right? If we knew how to do that, you'd have all done it already. We could have gone home yesterday night. Cup of tea. Okay, everyone, let go. Let's have a cup of tea and go to bed. Right? So we know the wisdom of that. But the meditation allows us to see the mechanism by which we take hold by which the clinging happens, by which we're trying to do something with this life. Trying to make it how I think it should be. So on the night of his awakening, the Buddha awoke to how how it's uh, talked about, he awoke to the Four Noble Truths. And he understood very clearly, number one, truth number one, yeah, there is dissatisfaction and suffering in life. That experience of things not being quite right. He said number truth number two, there's a cause for that. And the cause, the cause for that dissatisfaction is the grasping, the clinging, the taking hold of experience. Number three, he said there's an end to that suffering. And number four, there's a path to the end. There's a way. There's a way you can cultivate the, the heart-mind to understand and realize this. It's possible for human beings to know this. So just a tiny bit more on that before I tell you something else. A very nice way of looking at these four noble truths, if you imagine them in a list. And the list is, a, is the traditional kind of medical model from the system uh, uh, that the Buddha grew up in or, and still used. You know, you find the problem, you look at the cause... The way to the, uh, the the end of the cause and the way to the end of the cause, what the prescription would be. But if you look at this um, 
you can imagine that each one of these truths has a little piece of, a little box beside it. You know, in Alice in Wonderland, when she goes, um, she does all kinds of things, doesn't she? But she goes down the rabbit hole and she finds medicines down there, whatever it is, big bottles that say, drink me, with big letters on them, right? So each one of these truths has got a little label attached, an Alice in Wonderland label. And I only had time to write you out one label. Oh, and I didn't bring it. Yes, I did. Okay, truth number one, there is unsatisfactoriness. Very important, sometimes people get the idea that the Buddha's saying life is suffering. Have you heard it translated like that? You know, like, like it's an ultimate truth, like that's it, guys. Sorry. But it's not. It's, there is suffering. There is unsatisfactoriness. And the label that goes with that, the little bottle on the potion is... Understand me. There is suffering. There is unsatisfactoriness. Understand me. Understand suffering. Stand under it. Come close to it. Meet it. Get intimate with it as it shows up in your experience right now. Because this is the very place we can start to see how it comes to be like that. Somebody in the question and answers was speaking about, um, he said, oh, I realize when I'm with the breath, I actually think I'm trying to control the breathing, right? And there's something unsatisfactory about that. It's like, yes, that's very lightly. Understand me. Come close to that experience of where you're trying to control. Understand that. Feel it. Get into it from the inside. Because only through understanding it is there a way to let go. Second truth there's a cause to suffering the cause is clinging the little label that goes with it is let go of me let go of the clinging that way that we take hold of experience let go third truth there's an end to suffering very nice label realize me Realize the end of the suffering born of clinging. Realize it. And the Buddha says this is possible. It's not esoteric. It's not for people other than you. Realize this. And number four, there's a way to the end. There's a, uh, yeah, there's a way to the end. Walk it. There's a path to the end. Walk it. Do it basically. So we want to come close. When struggle or suffering arises, we want to come close to really get it from the inside because there's something, when we learn how to relate to that, that's really valuable for us. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, I'd like to read a story. Actually, I'll read you two stories. First is a piece from one of my teachers, and he talks about the value of struggle. He says, I'm here to show you how to struggle. I'm not here to save you from your problems. I'm here to show you how to make wine, how to grow the grapes 
and to take care of them, how to press them and how to work them until they turn into wine. You need to know how to make the wine for yourself. If I do it for you, you'll have to keep buying wine. But if you can use me as a way to learn how to make wine for yourself, then you will become mature. So in that metaphor, that the struggle is like a, an, a, an alchemy, if you like, a place where when we learn how to use it well, it can be a place that turns into something valuable that we want. Before I read this story, the other thing I'd love to know if there was time to ask each one, why did you come on a retreat called Embodying the Dharma? That may be news to some of you. You may not have read the title. But probably, probably a good number of you did. Right? So maybe some you just come in because it's the time of year that it is and it worked for you. Right? But for those who chose it consciously, how come? What does that mean, embodying the Dharma? Maybe you just wanted to find out what it meant. So what we're giving particular emphasis to here is embodiment, is fully entering the human realm of the body as the vehicle for realizing the truth of things, as the vehicle for being able to understand where the suffering is and to see what it means to come into contact with that, what it means to understand what releases. And the Dharma, for those of you who don't know that word, embodying the Dharma, the Dharma can be translated in in a number of ways, but Dharma means um, teachings of truth, teachings of liberation. It means the way things are. So embodying the way things are, embodying reality as it is, not how you think it should be, but as it is. And this is our vehicle for freedom. So we give a lot of emphasis on these days to mindfulness of body, first foundation of mindfulness, Making, coming into intimate contact with your body. We've stressed it today, so breathing in and out with the body. Qigong is a very embodied practice. How has it been? How is it to be invited to be mindful and intimate with this sensate realm, this realm of sensation of your body? Do you like it? Do you not like it? Are you not sure yet? Are you wishing you'd come to a retreat that was just about your mind? It's like, damn, this body it aches, it hurts. It's As I get older, doing less and less things amenable to what I want. And yet, if you look at the early teachings, the Buddha's instructions around meditation are very embodied. There's a lot of reference. It is absolutely a mind training, but there's a lot of reference to the sensate realm, to fully entering into sensation, to really start to know it as it is. 
because we can have a lot of fear or ambivalence around our body. We can fall into the extremes where we're either trying to kind of glorify it and, you know, how we, what we might perceive in the, when I go into the local spa shop, I'm always kind of really drawn, my eyes kind of go up to those shelves with all those magazines on of all these bodies that have been glorified, you know, kind of, I don't know what they call, hello magazine, all these kind of, wow, look what you can do with that body and that body, and, you know, really trying to make it something that, that um, somebody can find home in through glorifying it, through reifying it, through trying to get the best one and the right shape and the right skin and the right this and the right that. And we don't have to look far to know all the struggle that goes into that. Of where the body is kind of put on a pedestal. Or there's the other extreme with the body of trying to disregard it. Not giving it proper attention, not taking proper care. And on both of those extremes, rarely is somebody fully inhabiting their body. So in the story of the Buddha, his own story, he explored both extremes. Born as a rich prince in North India, his father we could say, indulged him, if you like, with the best sense pleasures that were available for his body at the time. So he had a palace for the rainy season that was just the right temperature, a palace for the hot season, a palace for the cool season. North India can be cool. He had the best food and the best entertainment and the lusciousest dancing girls you know, to entertain and to fulfill his bodily pleasure. It's like, from the Hello magazine point of view, he had it pretty good. Right? He had it pretty good. But it wasn't enough. It didn't do it for him. And we know that in our mind. We know that that won't do it. It won't fill that that gap, that, that need for home, that need for knowing what we are in our depth. So he went to the other extreme and when he first became a meditator he went to the ascetic extreme and denied his body and didn't eat properly. And he was down to one, the the story goes, he was down to one grain of rice a day. You know, so he was the super achiever of asceticism, if you like. He didn't do things by halves. He was wholeheartedly denying his body. (coughs) And after six years of practice like that, he achieved a lot of very interesting meditative experience. But he also realized, this isn't it either. 
recognizing he'd fallen into both extremes of reifying the body and of denying the body. Glorification and punishment, if you like. And what he moved to was what he called the later the middle way, the middle way between extremes. And in this case with the body of not glorifying but not denying. And then he started to eat again, more normally. Somebody gave him some milk rice and all his ascetic mates thought he was uh, you know, selling out because he ate properly again. And then the story goes, there's the night that he took his seat and recognized, okay, I've been to these extremes. What is the middle way and what is possible to realize for a human being when I'm not falling into either of those extremes? And he began the practice that night, remembering a memory from being a boy sitting under the tree and coming into mindfulness of breathing in the body. And he began to practice again in that way that night. And the story goes on. So are you interested or willing to inhabit this body more fully? story I've been promising to you, I'll get there in a minute. But this is a, a sort of practical encouragement. I hope I have it. Practical encouragement from the Buddha, from the text. On a very concrete level, he's a very concrete, practic- pragmatic kind of man. He gives a list of ten benefits of mindfulness of the body. Okay, And I'm going to read you four, I think. He says, monks and nuns, when mindfulness of the body has been practiced, developed, cultivated and used as a vehicle, established, consolidated and well undertaken, these benefits may be expected. What are they? Number one, one becomes a conqueror of discontent. Discontent does not conquer oneself. One abides overcoming discontent whenever it arises. Number two, one becomes a conqueror of fear and dread, and fear and dread do not conquer oneself. One abides overcoming fear and dread whenever they arise. Number three, one bears cold and heat, hunger and thirst, contact with gadflies, mosquitoes, wind, the sun and creeping things. One endures ill-spoken, unwelcome words and arisen, painful feelings, racking, sharp, piercing, disagreeable, distressing and menacing to life. So that's the first four. That one is not um, overcome by fear, is not overcome by sensation, is not overcome by mental states like discontent. So just those first four on a very practical level, entering more fully into our body gives a lot more room. Gives a lot more room for us to experience our mind and our feelings without clinging to them. Without believing the first thought that arises in our mind that, you know, I don't want that to happen.
But the trade-off is that if we're interested to come more deeply into our body, we risk and there will be the inevitable experience of having to feel. And some of our withdrawal into our head and the thinking realm is sometimes in response to wanting to get away from this rather unreliable, we could say, experience of having a body. Because, for one thing, it easily hurts. Right? You notice that. It's easily impacted, it's easily broken. It's a very vulnerable creature, being a human body, having a human body. It's very uh, delicate, it's easily impinged upon. You know, Brad was outside today doing Qigong and got stung by a wasp. You know, just having one of these human bodies, we're really vulnerable to all kinds of impact. There's the sensations of pain and of pleasure. You know, there can be a lot of pleasure experienced through the body as well. And sometimes even that can feel like too much. We want to withdraw to our head. Or maybe there's been contacts in the past with our body that have been too much to bear. And again, we've had to move away from the sensate realm of having a body. And as we re-inhabit through practice, we start to feel. We start to recognize it's not so much in my control. It gurgles and it, you know, does funny things after I eat and it, you know, has these kind of sensations and it has this kind of heat arising. And, or else it's numb and I can't feel a thing, but I don't seem to have any say over it. Entering making the journey, if you like, from constantly living in our head into our body is a journey of humility, of coming to earth, coming to earth, being of the earth as this body is, and as we know, returns to the earth when we die, was never apart from the earth, only in our mind. So as we enter into mindfulness of body, we will feel more sensations, more feelings. And we're sometimes ambivalent about that. Because if you're anything like anyone normal, what we would like is all the pleasant pieces and not have to have the unpleasant pieces. Right? So I like the meditations where it's delightful and bliss. I've heard about bliss in meditation. It sounds good and... Joy, joy sounds good, or peace. But I don't want the parts where there's painful feelings of pressure or aversion or, you know, sitting with a tired, aching body. But if we're willing to enter in, we're opening to the the full picture, the pleasure and the pain, and the in-between, the neutral Fully entering in. Because awakening is not the end of all this difficult sensate experience. Awakening 
is not about having the right experience. Because while we have a body, sometimes it's going to hurt. Sometimes it's going to be very pleasurable. Sometimes it's going to be neither. So finally this story. This is from one of my teachers. And he's talking about himself, his own meditation experience. Many years ago, I had this particular pain in my right shoulder. I would sit. Pain, I would think. Be with the pain. That'll do it. Here I am, being with the pain. Being with the pain. It's not working. Maybe I need to do some yoga. Ah, that's better. Oh no, a cushion. Cushion one, cushion two. Three cushions, four cushions. Angle the cushions to the left. Angle the cushions to the right. So this is his mind, as you can probably tell. Doctor, you've got to help me. Chiropractor, osteopath. For five years I had this pain. I had an extremely active and ingenious mind at trying to find every possible way to wriggle out of the fact that pain hurts and I don't like it. A very obvious truth, yet I hadn't actually come to that. Accepted what one glosses over in a few words. I don't like pain. Instead, I had acted on, I don't like pain. I hadn't actually examined the experience of not liking pain. I tried to think, well, I should like pain. Pain is good for me. Pain is bad. Make it go away. But I hadn't really looked into, I do not like. One day, sitting in meditation, I thought, this is it. The showdown. I'm going to sit here for five hours. And he was quite extreme, this sir. Teacher of mine. I'm going to sit here for five hours and I'm going to get over this thing. Pain, pain. Wriggle, wriggle. Why did I say that? Why five hours? After, after all, what about the middle way? The hours go by. Two hours. Three hours. Three hours and one minute. After about four hours, I was so sick of this pain. My mind had been through all the various circuits of be nice to it. Be friendly with it. Kill it. And it came back to, oh my God, this pain. And finally my mind just rested. I got tired out, I guess. Eventually, ignorance does get tired. And it has to take a break from being ignorant. And instead of ignoring it and repressing it, actually began to open to it. Without the usual, let's open to it and make it go away. Or... Let's open to it, and that will get me into some kind of cosmic space. But just, oh, all right. Then I began to see and feel this sensation throbbing away. It began to appear in my mind as some kind of glowing light, throbbing, tearing, a tearing experience. And then, because of the choiceless attention to it, I began to notice, well, there's the pain... And then there's this other kind of experience of no, no, no feeling going on. Oh, it's resistance. Then with that, a whole lot of bitterness towards my body. Bitterness towards the pain. Oh, pain, I don't like it. It shouldn't happen to me. Why did I do? I'm just sitting here trying to be peaceful. Pain, go away. This kind of moaning mind. 
As I contemplated my relationship to this sensation, it became clear to me that there was nothing I could do with the sensation. But I could stop beating it with my mind. I began to have this experience of deep regret for all the beatings and kickings that this mind had imposed upon life, had imposed upon this body, upon itself, upon its thoughts, telling my mind to shut up, telling it to be this way. And I felt like my whole system was some kind of mangy dog that had never really been loved and had just been told what to do and beaten. And in fact, this vision arose in my mind of this dog, a kind of hungry, mangy wolf, looking at me, saying, how long are you going to keep beating me for? I felt this sense of deep regret that there should be so much intolerance and hardness towards life. In my mind's eye, something in me reached out to this creature and started to pat it and to say, please forgive me. Then this creature turned into a cartoon dog and we were dancing. Me in the pain. Me in the pain. And then the whole thing just exploded very gently and the pain disappeared. It seemed to say thank you. Finally. I've been knocking on your door for five years. Thank you for opening. Thank you for recognising that the problem was I do not like, I will not accept. I will not open to you. And once you open, the lesson has been learned. The business is finished. So what would it mean over these days to come into relationship with this body? Again, we'll be talking about body a lot. And awakening is not just coming into your body, by any means. Sometimes people can be very much in their body and not very wise. But coming into our body is a necessary part of understanding, of wisdom, and is the place where, when we meet the pain, it's the place where compassion is cultivated. When we meet the pleasure and let it nourish us, can be the place of opening beyond what we already know. And when we meet what is neutral, what is neither pleasurable nor unpleasurable, and we go past the boredom and the disregard and the ignoring, can be the place where we cultivate incredible balance, where we start to recognize peace and the end of struggle. So let's sit for a moment together.